It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down Hey there, folks. It's KP Burke, and I'm back for another episode of American Loser. You guys already know the story. If you don't, Dad, what is the show? The show is American Loser. And what do we do here? Uh, We uh, put the spotlight firmly on number two, second place. Second place. It's a history show, too, by the way. He made it seem like it's something else. Okay. It's not not, not a show about plumbing. I mean, we have talked about stuff like that before. I mean, it is called American Loser. Correct. And you guys know that voice behind the ones and twos. Of course, who other than the sound engineer extraordinaire himself, Mr. Big Kahuna. Hey, how you doing, man? That's uh, Big Kahuna DDS. He just completed <laughs> dental school, by the way. Big Kahuna, sir. That's, a- <laughs> That's why I blinded you guys with my smile when you walked right in. It was a good day, man. It was a good day. But uh, we are, of course, at a Shared Universe podcast studio where Ming is taking excellent care of us. Uh, shout out to Ming Chen, of course. Uh, thank you for accommodating us. As always, we seem to schedule this show and then something comes up abruptly and we have to change it. So uh, that being said, this episode will be up today. Today is Tuesday, December 13th. Uh, so we're a week late on this one, but we're going to get to you. Don't worry about it, guys. Okay. Everything's coming in. Everything's coming in slowly. Had a little bit of time to review uh, some of our reviews. So I'm reviewing the reviews now. Oh. Most of them are quite helpful. That makes you the reviewer? I am, of yes. Of the reviews? Indeed. Okay. I'm above the law. So um, we were reviewing the reviews and a couple of them were interesting. Uh, I'm not – I don't want to call anybody a, a, a wimp or a pussy or anything like that. <laughs> That's the way to start the show, Kevin. Well, it, it's – when, when people complain about the language, I don't think we're that filthy of a show. I just don't. We it's literally some, have been saying we're – what was it? NPR, NPR with F-bombs. Yeah. It's there. It's there. Um, I guess some people are lured in by um, the idea of a father-son duo and uh, you know topics from history and stuff like that. And it's, uh, it's weird. So it's a lot of stuff going on here. But uh, we had somebody say that we curse too much, too many F-bombs, too many uh, uh, curse words. So what we did is I hired a third party um, to come up with a solution for us. And after they audited a selection of episodes, Dad, you have cursed 16 times throughout 16. the course of 16, 16 throughout the course of the episodes that they Not audited. Bad for three years though. Oh, no, no. Again, of the episodes audited, uh, I have cursed uh, somewhere between 22 and 23 times, depending on if you want to consider a couple of words I used, curse words. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Kahuna, Kahuna, um, 347 times. You cursed in just one Listen, Tammany I, Hall episode. I did not mean to curse that. F- <laughs> so, uh, what the hell? The shot caller, really? The outside auditors have decided that we can either put it in a swear jar, in which case um, uh, you will begin paying for our session. <laughs> for as little as $3. For as little swear. as $3 a month. <laughs> $3 per swear, folks. Um, no, thank you so much. That's some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> or the shot collar, as Kahuna is now wearing. Uh, Cahoons is happy. We gave him his, uh, first of all, tell, uh, shout out to Taylor Allen. Did a great job. We gave Cahoon his Christmas gift. It is a uh, a rookie, rated rookie baseball card for the one and only Big Cahuna. So dope. He used your so Christian dope. name too, by the way. 
Yeah, you did. See, pe- people who know know what I just did there. Christian, <laughs> Christian given name. His Christian given name. His name is a Christian man. <laughs> anyway, he's our I big kahuna. And we, uh, we, we're happy to be back, man. Uh, if you guys don't know, it is a history show. We're going to get into history here in a second. I promise you that one. Got to thank a couple of people real quick, too. Of course, we always thank Ming Chen, uh, makes things happen here for us. We love him to death. Uh, we love the big kahuna. Um, I love doing the show with my dad every week. We love the founding losers. There is no show without you guys. We have new people coming in all the time. It means a lot to me. There's yeah. one guy. There's one guy. I don't want to say the name, so I won't. There's one guy who joined and then deleted it like within like a day. And I was like, oh, I think he just downloaded all the episodes and bailed. And I was like, you know what? Good for him. Good for him. That's how you do it. <laughs> he figured out the system. Exactly. Sure. So, uh, no, we're uh, we're doing good on that. We're rocking steady here. And uh, there is more content coming out. We stopped doing the video portion of the show, but that's because Kahuna and I have an idea, Dad. Uh-oh. Three-Minute Loser is that back happened. on the table. Three-Minute Loser? Three-Minute Loser. It's awesome. where I do – I have to do three-minute recaps of the episodes in a video format. And then uh, Kahuna is going to work his, uh, his cute little tail off on it. And then um, if I don't hit it within the three-minute mark, Kahuna gets to hit me with the shot collar. Okay, there you so, go. Now we're talking. Yeah, it's a pretty even system. <laughs> <laughs> we're up in the ampage. And finally, I just want to say thank you to, all number one, all the comics that were on the show. And then number two, all the people that came out and saw us. Uh, we were four tickets away from a sellout at the dojo. Uh, and there were a couple people that said they were going to come and didn't. So you know what they called it, Dad? A sellout. A sellout. <laughs> Thank you to Mike Romanelli over at the dojo. Always doing great stuff there, man. Uh, his staff's the best and um, one of my favorite rooms in New Jersey. Uh, and then uh, also, of course, I have to thank uh, the great Vinny Brand. Uh, two weekends in a row I was featuring over at Stress Factory in New Brunswick. Meant a lot. Got to work with some really amazing people. And I'm loving comedy, folks. we got a bunch of more dates coming up in 2023. Please come out and see me live on the road. That was my last uh, – public gig for the year was the dojo so we're done we're, no more public gigs it's two privates know. you never know what happens uh, phone calls can be made i hear you That's on right. that one so uh but we've got a killer topic here for you today it's a great one dad you and i recently sat down and watched and i'm going to say that you would endorse it you would tell people to go watch this movie we have a lot of people that love watching war movies and stuff like that tyler prysock has like a crazy amount of knowledge about different units from world war one and two um but we sat down. Kuhn, did you see this one yet? The the remake of All Quiet on the Western Front? There's a remake? Well, there's been three or four, I think, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's been a recurring theme within moviedom. No, I haven't seen it. Well, it's one of those uh, incredible books that you just have to read. Um, and then it's also uh, – I mean, that's been on uh, summer reading lists since the book came out, I think. And by the way, a testament too, by the way, a lot of people screw this one up. When you hear Germany in World War II, you can – Focus your hatred of Nazis specific to the SS. Okay, keep your hatred there. That's where it belongs because that was the the true evil. That was the true believers. Um, people sometimes attach Nazi stuff to World War One Germany, and that's just not the case. Um, and this book is so impactful, all quiet on the Western Front, that it's been made into numerous um, film adaptations. And then also, it, it is a story um, about a young German man uh, going off to fight in. Uh, World War One, or the Great War, as it was known. The Great War, yeah. Yep. But he was not on our side. He was on the other side of the trenches. So it, it's funny to look at that. And then he is fighting um, in that – I believe he's mostly fighting uh, French uh, troops in the uh, this incarnation of the book, um, made into the film rather, and uh, the most current one. It was absolutely incredible. It does not uh, – it doesn't spare you any of it, right? right. I, you felt that sense of dread. Right. Mm-hmm. There's Absolutely. something in World War II. There are heroic moments in World War II when you can see uh, 
the troops storming the beaches of Normandy, when you can see the flag going up at Iwo Jima, you can see dogfights, uh, you know, going. There's a lot of heroic moments in World War II. World War I looks like everybody just got thrust into hell. Yeah, it was a slaughter. It was a meat grinder. Yep. And this particular story that we're going to say today is uh, – or tell today is uh, an amazing story. I've known about this story for a while. I did not know how amazing the story was. Um, you and I talked about this when I was in high school, I want to say, because I was asking. I said, why is there no World War One movies? It's very hard to make a World War One movie because if you're trying to sell tickets and have people sit there and say, well, here's how I'm going to spend my Saturday night. They don't want to be contemplating their very existence. <laughs> right. There's a reason why after this war, the entire world was known – anybody involved with it that was um, – I'm 35 right now. So I would have been at the tail end of what would have been useful service at that point. Um, but when you look at the people – and we saw uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. You and I went and saw in theaters. 1917, you and I went and saw in theaters. Mm -hmm. These are young boys in World War One. It is not – Hey, you're 17 with your parents' permission. These kids were like 14, 15 running off to fight in the war. Right. And things were getting so desperate at the time. Right, especially towards the end of the war. Oh, yeah. They've already put so many people but through the meat grinder. To, that's all that was left. Was yeah, your brothers, uh, we don't know if they're coming back. So now uh, the, the kids right out of high school that were recruited and sold the old song about, uh, you know, die for your country. Right. You know, and by the way, this is a huge thing I always want to talk about. And, and this this particular story here, and obviously if you've read the title of the episode, you will know we are going to be talking today about the Lost Battalion. That being said, Kahuna, have you ever heard of the Lost Battalion before? Oh, no. no. It, it's a good one. It's a it's good a, one, Kahuna. It's a cool ass title, but it is, I, uh, I bet it's dark as hell. It's going to be dark. It's got uh, all the makings of an epic loser tale. It uses the uh, usual ingredients. We have war, carnage, and carrier pigeons. <laughs> you wrote that line just for me. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I both appreciate and, and I'm angry about it for it. But well, let's continue. You're going to like this. Um, and and this, is, um, this is how you would make – I'll tell you exactly what movie I know you will make of the- There's the, no Muppets in it, I promise. It's close. It's very close. Um, as we were saying, there, there is some lightheartedness towards the end of this that we're going to cover because we, we're not going to send you home upset, folks. We love you on this show, okay? <laughs> A lot of We're not trying to ruin your day on your commute into work as many of you listen to this show during- Right, right. Um, but we have to be honest. The trenches in World War I are amongst the most gruesome of conditions for warfare we've ever seen on planet Earth. A war that started off with uh, young kids marching away in bright uniforms um, in marching bands that led the way with much fanfare. Um, the idea of heading off to glory is very much there and it is starkly contrasted once you get to the front lines and you can see the futility, the horror and the sheer lack of humanity that was witnessed on hand, boots on the ground by troops on the front lines of what will become known as the Great War. I can't call it World War One because they don't know that a little funny guy with a chaplain mustache has some ideas. <laughs> Who served in that war. Who's, right? by the way, fighting. He <laughs> yeah. is fighting for Germany. And by the way, one of the reasons why All Quiet on the Western Front is such a controversial book is because it takes out the – it takes the piss out of the uh, – this is war, but war is hell. And it's not a war is hell like Apocalypse Now where there's like the sheer – this is not a movie that you play to get the troops fired up before uh, you know a, a big a deployment. No. Or, no. Uh, uh, you know, this this isn't, isn't a morale booster. There's no, yeah. There's no speeches to be played to fire up the football team on a Friday night. Right. Um, this, is, this is brutality. Um, generations are going to be lost and those that survive are going to be part of a generation known as the lost generation. That's going to be your beatniks, your poets, um, American expatriates living in abandoned hotels in Paris, 
Uh, you're going to have your uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald moments. You're going to have things that lead up to the Roaring Twenties. Everything like that. Well, by the by, the end of the whole thing, um, mil- millions—not just you know thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions and millions of people have uh, are perished. I mean, gone on on all fronts: um, England, France, Germany, Austria, Russia. Uh, the the casualties was just insurmountable, and. Um, that's besides or added to that the whole uh, Spanish influenza, which took out millions worldwide. And you also had some atrocities like the uh, Ottoman Turks uh, um, slaughtering uh, a million and a half Armenians. I mean, this was all in that same time span of the First World War. It uh, it was a, a gruesome time right before that Roaring Twenties. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. "Do you love jazz?" Because we just love jazz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think jazz came from? They had to get a little bit influence. By the way, jazz also comes from World War One too, as we covered with um, the Harlem Hellfighters. Right. Lose reception already, folks. Um, interestingly enough, you're right, Dad. There's a lot of gruesome stuff going on over here. This is brutal. Um, This story we're about to tell today, though, it is gruesome, it is hard, and it will show uh, a human being's capacity for suffering is one of our truly superhuman qualities. So I'm going to set the table for you, folks. This is The show's called American Loser. Okay, we will do International Loser again because we had a lot of fun with that. We got a lot of requests for a Guy Fox episode. Okay. So we might have to do that one. Um, but, that would be cool. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff to have. And, uh, we, we'd stick around, folks. Year four is going to get really weird. <laughs> um But the show is called American Loser. So we're going to focus in. The war has been raging in Europe. And by the way, Dad, if you want to compare World War II and World War I, obviously transportation is a huge, huge deal. Um, The advent of uh, aviation, warfare, everything like that. Um, Massive ships, aircraft carriers, everything like that. Um, But the modern world kind of comes at you like a fireball from this great war. That when you see that trench warfare, that's the first idea we have of modern warfare here. And by the way... World War II, a map of World War II is going to have, what do you want to talk about, the European theater or the Pacific theater? Do you want to talk about the naval battles or do you want to talk about the land engagements? No. Uh, World War I, we're going to talk about Herocious. Herocious? Herocious. Herocious. Heroic? Uh, Heroic moments. Where are you going? Atrocious. (laughs) Atrocious. There it is. Atrocious. Hiroshima. (laughs) World War II. Um, No, uh, most important to note here, though, is that we're talking about absolutely atrocious um, and and horrendous. Those are the two words I was just trying to get out. Okay. Um, Well, that's a blend. It certainly is. (laughs) Atrocious is a blend. (laughs) But it's worth noting, though, um, that the gains and losses – Troop movement-wise, territory-wise, we're talking like inches and feet on the front lines. Yeah, the the front lines really didn't move a whole lot from the start of the war to the end of the war. That was one of the the meat grinder slaughter effect of this. I mean, uh, the war starts actually in 1914. So there's your timeline. That's the kickoff when somebody gets assassinated in the – in the far off uh, Balkans kind of a thing. And then uh, all these various um, unions come together or are now fighting against one another. It's not quite the axis just yet, but it's, uh, it's Germany, Austria, Hungary. uh, It's uh, the Ottoman Turks uh, in against uh, pretty much the rest of the world. Um, The Russians are involved uh, and then, 
bail before the end of the war, but that's another whole well, atrocity. There's plenty too. of stuff. Don't worry. We're yeah. going to get into a guy named Rasputin during International History Month, International Loser Month, I should say. But um, uh, but anyhow, they've been slugging it out since 1914. Correct. And initially, Germany makes a big push um, into France and does capture some territory. But then again, we're in the modern age now. It's not like the war was fought initially with uh, um, old school tactics, but um, old school tactics really don't work really well when you're um, charging a trench with machine guns in it. And uh, The advent of that, just to, to explain too, because uh, I think Kahuna would appreciate this as well. Um, the young Frenchmen that went off to fight in this war were fighting in uh, bright blue uniforms. They had bright blue uniforms on, and then um, that didn't really last too long because yeah, uh, covered in mud, covered in, in guts, uh, uh, dire straits you're living in over uh, in the trenches. They slowly started to turn purple. Uh, it, it's there. Also, uh, horses completely just became non-existent on a battlefield. That was uh, that was really the, a regular thing here. There was horseback you know, cavalry that was riding off at the onset of this war and coming back is people saying, have you heard of a Lewis machine gun? Have you heard of a flamethrower? Because we've seen them up close. Have you heard of this tank thing they just came up with? Yeah, we've got a tank. Hey, some is- dick's up in the sky. <laughs> Can you imagine? In a giant T and he's dropping bombs on us. Yeah. Can you imagine being that person who has to tell, like, they got this thing called a tank and then someone's like, what's a tank? Right. Well, right. uh, just uh, go over that ridge over there and you'll see about four of them heading straight for us. Right. And and again, uh, this is the modern world clashing with uh, old uh, old school tactics kind of a thing that, you know, we never had to face or charge into a, a machine gun. Uh, we didn't have uh, concertina wire, razor wire, barbed wire uh, fortifying or uh, protecting your defenses that you have to crawl through that before you can actually get to the get to the enemy to, to even shoot at him. You got uh, air war for the first time. So we're not just fighting on the land and on the sea, but now we're fighting up in the air as well. So, I mean, it was a, a complete and total uh, game changer, but it took uh, some of the some of the old school tactics uh, a while before they could figure that out. When you say trenches, yeah, they had trenches that after that initial surge by the Germans, um, then it was a, you know, dig in and hold the line type of a thing. When a trench, yeah, well, picture trenches, miles and miles of trenches that basically there was a trench going from the English Channel all the way to the Alps, all the way to Switzerland. <laughs> that's that's a freaking lot of digging. That's, uh, you know, and it's not just one single trench. It's it's a different series of trenches back and forth. So, I mean, it's- uh, And Switzerland sitting there like, oh, guys, we're just, you guys just settle it between you. Right. And <laughs> we're here to finance whoever wins. Right. Switzerland, the, the No beef, you. no beef. We're on to you, Switzerland. The whole term of uh, no man's land comes into uh, into coin. Uh, yeah. that, uh, now, the, the, the area between the two trenches, the enemy's trench and your trench, is an area that nothing will live. And it's, it's laced with- uh, you know, as I said before, uh, barbed wire, razor wire, concertino wire, all different things. And uh, you've got all these machine guns protecting that. So as you're trying to crawl through that crap, you're also uh, dodging machine gun fire. So it's uh, it's a completely different, horrific situation that totally um, meant to be in place. Then. Not this- a fun night at Asbury on a Friday. No, no, no. 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 It's, um, and I'll tell you what, too, the other important thing to note here with this is that 
This is one of those wars, by the way. People got nervous about this. I think on Christmas Day, the story that I got was on Christmas Day when early on in the war, maybe not super early on, somewhere in the middle, um, there was a ceasefire on Christmas Day. I know the story. And they started singing back and forth to each other from the trenches. It wasn't just singing, like both sides like had a complete and like there there was handshaking and and you know, uh hanging out, if you will. And the officers got around real quick and like, all right, we can't do that ever again. These guys are like, You're just like me. What are you dude, you're 50, do you like titties and beer? I love titties and beer. <laughs> so well, that sums it up. Yeah, yeah uh, it, it was uh, the, these English guys. They drink as much beer as we do here in Germany. You know, if not more. Yeah, right. Now these Irish, they're no good. Get rid of. <laughs> they got this thing called alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it is worth noting on that though that this is one of those wars where you can feel for both sides on the thing. Again, that's why we're, we're making sure to get away from uh, this idea. Uh, the Nazi thing permeates throughout World War One for some reason. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a bunch of bad shit that's about to happen. Feel but, in the sense that it's people are definitely the ones who are suffering more so than the ones in power. Oh, yeah. This that is are uh, having to deal with the consequences. These are generations of young men absolutely led to slaughter. That's uh, no doubt about it. Now, in order to – Dad, you did a great job setting the table there for us. Um, I'm going to get right to it so we can get into the heart of our story here today. Yeah, we're, we're telling get this moving. The Americans are coming. Okay? The Americans are coming. It is towards the end of the Great War that it already claimed so many young European men's lives. And let's be clear, men is very loosely applied here. Kids were as young as 12 on the front lines towards the end of the war, fighting for France, England, and Germany, Austria, Hungary, all those things. The United States is enjoying its ability to profit uh, from the war without getting directly involved. Uh, at the moment, the president who ran on the idea of uh, we're not going to send our boys off to die in Europe right. – with that Woodrow his, Wilson. That was his presidential uh, campaign slogan as he kept us out of war. Oh, yeah. Woodrow Wilson, former governor of what state, Lawrence Patrick? Uh, the, uh, Garden State, New Jersey. New Jersey. Former governor of New Jersey, now president of the United States, only able to win the presidency of the United States thanks to uh, uh, beating William Howard Taft, uh, who was running on the Republican Party ticket, and a third party emerged in that election. I'll give you one guess. Who is the head of the Bull Moose Progressive Party, oh, Kahuna? That's right. Teddy. Motherfucking Roosevelt. Yep. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's it. Swear I dark. Took, swear I, dark. Took, I took the collar off for that because that's the exception. <laughs> that's, his, that's his full given name. But. That but, is his but. last name. I'm, well, his middle name. It is true. He's actually, this is a fact. It's a fact. Um, so uh, easy with your complaints there. And by the way, when people complain about the show, Dad, um, we should remind them that we will refund all of their money. <laughs> that they didn't give us. To the free episode yes. that you're now receiving. I just wanted a free three hours of entertainment and I just was so compelled to write a nasty note to you. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. If you don't like the show, I'm sorry. All right. It is what it is. That being said, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, thumbprint has already been placed on this episode here. So now we can get into the nitty gritty. Despite having a very large German and Irish population, we've talked about this before. The reason why that was such a big deal the two major immigrant waves of the time in the United States are Irish and German. Now, if you side with England, who you're having these uh, this special relationship is blossoming around this time frame. Um, very strong, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, if you side with England, you're going to piss off, uh, number one, every German who now has to decide whether or not they want to fight their cousin. Okay, And you're also going to upset every Irishman who goes, I just got away from their bullshit. Now you're bringing them into my uh, – I just, I just built this new yard. Now you got to bring a new dog in here? What's going on, guys? Right. So, however, if the US – and this is where you want to talk about – this is the darkness. This is the darkness. In 
as the tide was turning towards the Allies' favor in the war, um, Kaiser Wilhelm did allow the use of unrestricted uh, submarine warfare. So the U-boats, mm-hmm. the Germans. You just want to be honest? I, I'm being honest. There's something special about the German Kultur. Okay, Kultur, culture, that's what they were calling it. Mm-hmm. The Kultur that they had. They loved science. We already talked about it too. We did the whole episode on the Jack Parsons thing. We told the Nazis, I'm sorry, we told Nazi Germany that they weren't allowed to have, um, uh, you know, pretty much weapons and a small army uh, post World War One. And what they do, like, ah, oh, that's fine. We're, we got this rocket thing we're working on. It's pretty cool. So, <laughs> yeah, and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you guys have boats that go on top of the water. Oh, that's cute. We have one that goes under. Yeah, you can't see it at all. We've it's got a- this von Braun guy. <laughs> von Werner von Braun. Good callback. <laughs> Um, but they're incredible. Uh, they, they really are incredible here. Uh, the use of this uh, unrestricted uh, U-boat warfare does result in the sinking of the Lusitania, which had Americans on board it. And it was a civilian ship, mind you. There is some, con- you know, there's a little there's controversy that. over that. Oh, right. of course there yeah, is. Of course there is. Anything, anything that monumental is going to have controversy. Oh, without a doubt. And the sinking of the Lusitania all but guaranteed that the Germans are about to be hearing from their American cousins in a hurry. So to muster the American Expeditionary Forces, which is the unit that was sent over here, headed up by Black Jack Pershing. Black Jack Pershing. John John uh, Pershing. And his right-hand man, General Patton. Future oh, General Patton. Yeah, not his right-hand man just yet, but he's uh, he's an up-and-comer. Uh, yeah, they said A out. prequel loser. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah, is right. great. They said, hey, we're going to stop hunting Pancho Villa for a minute and go fight in this little debacle over in Europe yeah. with the, the Franks and the germs. Um, but they go ahead and they muster this unit up, the American Expeditionary Forces. The U.S. is forced to bring in majority of their currently enlisted forces and also send over those that were drafted and or volunteered for the service. Okay, The Lusitania, a precursor to Pearl Harbor in, in many ways. You know what I mean? Pearl Harbor being a, a direct attack on the military uh, vessel. The Lusitania uh, under the guise of being a civilian ship, whether or not it was carrying supplies overseas and how many Americans were truly on board. That's up for you to decide here. However, these are the numbers. 4.2 million Americans are sent over to Europe in World War One. Okay. Yeah, but initially the American army was uh, very, very tiny, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they sent Black Jack Pershing over early without really an army. They sent the le- some of the leadership, and the army is coming. Like here, he's one of the first Americans to arrive over in uh, France. Oh yeah, to try to get things going. But uh, you know, the army is. Uh, is in its infancy. We're gonna need uh we're gonna need at least uh two million volunteers. Oh, we have two million volunteers. Okay. And about two million more are just gonna get drafted. drafted. So right, right. Uh, get some letters in the mail, folks. Pick up stamps on your way. We're sending right. a few things out. Um now one unit in particular, okay, that this is gonna be the unit that we're focusing our attention in on here today is the U.S. 77th Division, which is roughly nine companies of men. Now, Dad, there's going to be differing uh, um, numerical monikers attached to this group. For the uh, the use of today's episode, we're going to refer to the 554 men uh, that in October of 1918 will go into the Argonne Forest, uh, known as the Lost Battalion. Yeah, now that, that 554 that you're uh – um, hanging your hat on here. That is what's left um, at this particular point in October of 1918. Correct. And, so, and, and mind you, Kahuna, I'll ask you this one. Kahuna, we're putting you on the spot. You're running a bunch of technical stuff behind the scenes and you do it better than anybody else. So if you don't know the answer to this, it's okay. That being said, <laughs> if we just said October of 1918, if we just said October, 
is when this incident is going to go down. Mm-hmm. When is the end of World War One? The end of World War One? I'll give you a hint. We recently celebrated it. Uh, we always celebrated it's Veterans Day. Really? It is. That is the the eleventh. Yeah. Initially, it was known as Armistice Day because that's when the armistice or the ceasefire was called to end World War One, or at least call a ceasefire. On the eleventh day of the eleventh month, at the eleventh hour. Oh wow! Now, when did it? Well, I mean, this is kind of a general question, but when did it become more of a veteran celebration? When was was that more of a new thing? I think probably as the After, aging out of uh, the World War One veterans, uh, and you wanted to continue to honor uh, traditions and stuff like that. Uh, LP's got something really good for you on the way out on that, actually. So as usual, Coon's asking the good questions. Yeah, there on. you go. Copy that. Uh, actually, I went from armistice to uh, Veterans Day, I believe, after we had to have another world war before mm. before we started putting numbers. Uh, after yeah. our world when a pesky wars. sequel came along, yeah. no one really <laughs> exactly, wanted. Exactly right. World War II, electric. Boogaloo. It was the Great War at this point. It wasn't World War One. It was the Great War or the war to end all wars. This is totally I'm- unrelated, but I love. Uh, there's this. I watched this science fiction show, uh, Doctor <laughs> Who, and there's a great moment in this in one of the episodes where the Doctor is just like ta- he's talking about the world wars, and he's like World War Two, and there's a World War One soldier in there. And he's like. Excuse me, what? <laughs> oh, you guys are going to do this again? Oops. Yeah. yeah. Tell me there's different characters. Germany again? <laughs> uh, that great Norm MacDonald joke. Germany, once again, has chosen as its opponent the world. The world. <laughs> <laughs> but the men in this unit are referred to as the Metropolitan Division uh, by many due to their uh, numbers largely consisting of troops from New York City. Many of them new immigrants and not from well-off backgrounds. Many of them not even born in the United States. Okay. Yeah, the the vast majority of these guys that made up the uh, this it was um, these the were Ellis Island guys. The med- these were uh, lower, lower East Side. Um, a lot of immigrants. A lot of immigrants. Uh, I found some research said that there was like forty-seven different languages that could have been spoken <laughs> within within that division from all these the immigrants that were. Uh, residing in the Lower East Side, whether they were volunteers says, or whether they were drafted, but uh, they're they're in the they're in the hopper. And uh, like Kahuna was just saying too, Ellis Island, just to let you know, the their unit insignia actually has the Statue of Liberty uh, featured prominently in their unit. They were all partly known as the Liberty Division because of that. Oh, wow. um, known as the Metropolitans because they were all city kids. Because you also you, there's a sense of pride in that as well. I mean, like these guys worked hard to become American citizens. I mean, like it would it would make sense for them to. I mean, yield that kind of patch. If I'm, if I'm, if I sound really stupid, I apologize. No, no. It, uh, it, it's also interesting too that that Statue of Liberty is probably one of the first things they ever saw upon arriving in the country. Oh yeah. Okay, because again, a lot of these guys. The welcoming gonna, beacon. Wait till I tell you that a couple of the characters you're going to meet in this story here too are pretty nuts that way. Um, that they're not even born in the country, but now they're going to go fight for it, uh, which is. Always an impressive thing, man. Right. So, but they're Lower East Side toughs. I mean, they're, they're a hard scrabble. Uh, uh, street smart um, kind of a guy. There's, are- there's some street rat nonsense going on here. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why they do all right in the trenches. Right. Now, just to set the stage, how far are we into the Great War? At this uh, point? So you are, and, and I'm going to we'll just well, repeat that one part here. Um, the uh, This incident we're about to talk about is going to take place in October. So you're talking about less than six weeks left in the war. But at the time that these boys are marching away, they don't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't. They don't realize that. Right. I mean, the war really starts 
for the for England and France and Germany and all the other uh, players in the in the Great War in 1914. Okay. The United States, with the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, um, they get into into the war by 1917. But initially, America really can't do shit about what's going on over in Europe because they really have no army. So Sucks there was to a, suck. Yeah, there was a uh, you know a lot of time getting people together and getting them shipped over to Europe before they could have a significant play in that. And that was one of the things that Pershing was sent over early on because France has been, you know, wiped out. Whole generations have been wiped out. Same thing with England, that England and France are all clamoring for the Americans to join with their forces. So it was going to be a kind of, kind of a combined thing. And Pershing and Wilson were not having it, that if we're going over as Americans, we're going to fight as Americans in our own units. We're not going to be melded into um, French units or British units. We're going to be our own our own uh, unit, if you will. Um, Except so, yeah. for the Harlem Hellfighters. You can borrow them for a little bit, French. Yeah, that was there was one uh, – the Harlem Hellfighters mm -hmm. uh, were, uh, were the, I think, the only unit that was actually – um, put in within uh, with the Frenchies. And uh, honored by them too, by the way. Right. Now, this particular unit here, they're actually going to train on Long Island. So these are all city kids now training out on Long Island under the leadership of uh, Charles uh, Whittlesley, who was an East Coast lawyer. So Whittlesley is a, a great character for the story here. Whittlesley, yeah. He's uh, an East Coast lawyer, but he was also a Harvard uh, graduate. So Harvard. I mean, Harvard. So I mean, he's a well-educated guy and was doing very well for himself as a lawyer. And now comes into uh, into the army, and you said that they trained in Long Island at a camp in Long Island before they the, before they were shipped over. Jersey connection. Uh -oh. There's um, a couple on this one. <laughs> Don't give away the final one. Yeah, because uh, I got I got to show a little hometown pride here because um, these raw troops, as they either enlisted or volunteered. Uh, or or drafted were now trained at these various camps, and then you still got to get them over to Europe. So how are you going to do that? Well, um, the a lot of the German uh, cruise lines that had docks and and piers and stuff in uh, Hoboken, Jersey connection, Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey, and some oh, of the no. other piers along the uh, New York Harbor. Um, they were confiscated once uh, America oh declared war on, on Germany. Um, and then there was a huge uh, camp um, that was quickly constructed in uh, called Camp Merritt. It was a major debarkation camp in New Jersey on the bordering between – Wait for it. Here he goes. Dumont, New Jersey. That's where he's from, And Creskill, New Jersey. That's not Whoa. where he's from. It was a huge, it was a huge camp. It was uh, had a capacity for 38,000 uh, transient troops. So these guys would be shuffled into Camp Merritt and uh, there were two smaller camps in Long Island. And then these guys would be marched from – well, from Camp – if you were in Camp Merritt, you would be marched – for about an hour over to the Hudson River by uh, Alpine and then take a ferry boat down to Hoboken, get on the ship in Hoboken, and then send you over to uh, to France. I wonder how close that camp in Long Island was to uh, Camp Siegfried, the, the German-American <laughs> boon would <laughs> right, later have out there. That was Camp Upton, in the one in Long Island where 
uh, our story is today. But Upton was really just a, a smaller camp that was part of this whole uh, debarkation and also bringing them back. And once the war was over, they they were processed through Upton and, and That's There's some horrifying stories about people that live all the way through a war and then the ride home gets a little bumpy. Um, yeah. We covered one of those. Um, but anyhow, that's more horrifying yeah, now, than any situation. You're going home and then f- there's a chance that you might not make it because the ride sucks. That's the, uh, crazy. We covered one of those too. Uh, it was a Civil War uh, era ship. But um, here's the thing. Uh, <clears throat> this particular unit who would obviously is going to become known as the Lost Battalion um, is going to enter the front of the Argonne Forest okay, in a battle that will last until the end of the war on November 11th. Germany knew war was coming. They were preparing and in classic German fashion, say what you will about them. Okay. A lot of, a lot of crazy things about them over there. A lot of terrible things you can dislike, but the German Kultur, these are warlike people with brains. And uh, what did they do, dad? Uh, they were preparing in classic German fashion, a little bit too well, one might say. They determined what the key locations of where an attack might come from if a war ever was to break out. Right. And what they'd been doing leading up to the war was actually dialing out um, using their artillery, uh, you know, massive artillery, by the way. They had some of the very best artillery. Um, they were uh, sighting in different key locations. And they said, this particular location over here, if there was to be an issue, if there was to be French troops that were trying to uh, mount an attack on us, right. this would be where they would concentrate their forces in order to be able to take, you know, control of this German-held territory. However, comma, not if we sight in our artillery to absolutely obliterate anybody that comes right. along. Which is there. another reason why there was so little movement of the actual front lines in the four years of the war. Because if you did gain somebody's trench, right? They well, were sighted they in. They already on, yeah. had it dialed in as they would just uh, send in an artillery barrage and wipe out whatever advances. Oh, congrats. You took our land. Yeah, right. <laughs> Have you heard of death perception? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just you just gained 300 yards, which was a huge thing. But we now just annihilated whatever whatever ground you uh, were gained in that major offensive. Guten Tag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you think any of these boys went into this thinking like this is for the Black Tom explosion? That's a <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, it is Jersey. Uh, anarchism yeah, that's another- was a, a fear that was going on there. That Germany had a lot of fear of uh, of that as well, too. And then obviously the immigration waves coming through. Um, now, like I was saying, though, this is parts kind of blows my mind. They had these guns sighted in to perfection. So if an enemy unit was able to take position to threaten Germany, they were going to be blasted into oblivion. Not to mention the Germans also placed barbed wire in such mass quantities that it was often taller than most male humans. Okay. Also, most. in addition to that, in a, most he says, <laughs> all six foot five cahoons over here. Send in the tank. We call him Kahuna. <laughs> Kahuna smash. Um, but uh, they were also running barbed wire uh, through water. So even if you were like, oh, walking, that's dirty. Yeah, it was dirty, but it was very effective. By the way, rules of war are going to come into effect here because we're also talking about gas and flamethrowers, everything like that. But here's the thing. We do know, we do know that the Americans knew how well prepared the Germans were going to be. That did not dissuade the Americans from being forced to. They understood the only way to try to end this war is to break through the German lines and affect their ability to resupply. Okay? Everybody's been losing. It's a meat grinder. You're trying to outlet. Everybody, imagine this. Imagine if it's uh, like a brutal boxing match where a guy just won't go down. Yeah, but that's a- both people. 
Right. That's yep. both sides. Just everybody's just getting pulverized. It's You're watching the 15th the round and these guys can't even lift their arms to swing a punch, but uh, they're still they're still trying. You're in the meat grinder now. And Your American cousins just showed up. And you got these these uh, fortifications, these trenches, the razor wire, the barbed wire and everything else, the artillery. Uh, they've had four years in preparation. And we say a line. It's really not just one singular line. That's, uh, I think, a misconception that a lot of people like have. If you're going to attack the enemy's position, there's probably an initial front line type of a thing, which is really uh, minuscule. It's very, it's lightly guarded, but it's really just a, a sentry post kind of thing to let them know that, uh, hey, they're coming. Because yep. then you go back another mile or so. And now you've got some really serious shit with uh, um, machine gun nests and crossfires and, and everything else that, uh, you know, in order to capture a mile worth of uh, territory. That is you very, to, very generous, by the yeah, way. Yeah, you had to go through, uh, you had to go through the meat grinder. There's a, I won't give anything away here either. Everybody should see the movie All Quiet on the Western Front, but uh, they did a great job of showing that uh, uh, what you're fighting for today is what you're giving up tomorrow. That's kind of how the war went over there. So. Anyway, uh, knowing how well prepared the Germans were going to be does not stop the fact that the Americans have to launch their attack. Their orders are very simple. March, fight, take, and do not relinquish. Retreat is not an option. In fact, it is punishable by death. So, right. if, if you, you gain any ground, you're not going to give it up. You're gonna, if you gain ground, you're going to die trying to hold it. The only way out is through. That's kind of what they were right. saying over here, which is why this, these poor bastards, October 1st, 1918, Six weeks left in the war, but they don't know that yet. They don't know that. These are boys on the ground. These are these are kids. Um, I'm, Cousin Liam has been on the show before. Cousin Liam is what, 25 now? Yeah. Liam would be on the front lines of this thing. Liam would be considered one of the older guys right. at 25, uh, leading these guys into to battle over here. And that's that's horrifying for a million different reasons. I mean, I was <laughs> – not for nothing. I was 19 when I joined. Um, but – there's six weeks left in the war. These guys don't know that. That's being handled in, you know, train cars miles away. Uh, diplomats, you know, reading reports, able to, you know, detach themselves emotionally from what's going on here. The orders came down uh, to Major Wittesley. He and his men would launch the offensive. Their goal was to capture a crucial mill and crucial roads that would allow the Allies to resupply and also cut off German supply routes. A specific hill, Hill 198, was deemed essential for the Americans to take. Whittlesley and his men fought all day under extremely tough conditions and are able to take the hill. Yeah, now Sounds I think- pretty one, good so far, right, Cahoons? I think one of the key things here, too, is um, what, what, what number did you put to it, 554? Correct. That's who's left at, at the start of this because uh, they launched up this ravine to go try to capture 198 and beyond this road, this mill and everything else. But this big push, if you will, into the Argonne Forest really started in September 26. So these guys have been fighting without rest for even before that. So for nearly a this, month, right. these, guys, these guys have been slugging it out back and forth. Um, and now finally they're, they're told, oh, you got to go up this ravine, you got to capture this hill, you got to capture this mill and everything else. And there's no pushback. And this particular unit is on the Americans' extreme left. So who's to their left is a French unit. Correct. Um, to to kind of tie in. So everybody is trying to make this big push onto the German front. 
with the French. I'm draw, I got a good map we're going to use to draw this one out. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, Kahuna. Okay. It's you, me, and my dad. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're going to go after these ghosts. Right. There's ghosts. Okay. And <laughs> okay. we say, hey, we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder here and we're all going to take a step forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to take another step forward. And then three, we're going to have a unified front here. And uh, I'm going to be on your left. My dad's going to be on your right. And Kahuna, you're going to be in the middle. You good with that? Okay. Okay. We all take our steps. I see a ghost. I'm freaked out. I can't go any further. We're okay. pulling you with us. Uh, <laughs> you didn't see shit. Keep if this cousin Bob Kahuna says, feet do my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, I saw a ghost. I'm freaked out. A ghost confronts my father and he stays right where he is. Okay. All of a sudden, Kahuna, all you did was take the two steps forward that we talked about. And now who's by himself out there? Uh-oh. Now, there's not ghosts in front of you anymore. There's ghosts to your left and your right. And Kahuna, if you're not careful, there's going to be ghosts behind you in a second. This is what happened to what becomes known. Would you say that at that point, Kahuna, you were lost? He's oh, putting wow. it together, folks. <laughs> the lost battalion goes forward. They were supposed to be taken care of to their left by the French troops who saw a massive German counterattack and were not able to secure their position moving forward. The Americans moved forward, okay, at cost, by the way, under heavy fire. And the Americans were able to take their position. They were then able to take Hill 198, which is this crucial part of this mission for them. And their commander is just sitting there and going, it's quiet, man. (laughs) A little too quiet, A little too quiet, right? Yeah, a little too rough. Um, And that's when they realized it. They're starting to put it together here. They don't know. They don't want to think they're in the dire straits they're in. But what is about to become known as the Lost Battalion has moved itself so far into enemy territory, they are now completely surrounded by the enemy. Yeah. Now, before we go any further, though, we got to we got to put we got to put this thing down here. They become known as the Lost Battalion, but. First off, it was a mix of a lot of different units that they weren't a one. Nine divisions, I think. No, no, one, nine they, companies. They weren't any specific battalion. So they really weren't a battalion per se. They were a, a makeup of a bunch of different um, companies within that that then became known as the battalion. And they really weren't lost. They knew exactly where they were. They were where they were supposed to be, 198 and beyond. It was the people that the the French to the left of them and other American units to the right of them that did not make as far in advance as they were able to. So if you got – And it wasn't for lack of trying either. Yeah, is the guy on the left is behind you and the guy on the right is behind you and you're out front, you're the, you're the point of the spear. But at the same time, you're going to be easily encircled uh, and now you're out all on your, your onesies all by yourself because – and that's exactly what happened is that they got, they got surrounded. So uh, now uh, Willisley is going to realize a little bit too late that the men under his command had taken new ground and moved forward successfully. But their French counterparts have been brutally counterattacked by the Germans and are no longer able to protect their flank. Essentially, these American boys, mostly from New York, had advanced with no protection on either side. For lack of a better term, his battalion now surrounded, unable to communicate, resupply, or redirect. As far as their command knew, they were now simply lost. Lost. Damn. There was a runner assigned to warn Whittlesley, um, and uh, he had been killed trying to get word to the city boys here. 
The runner, who is attempting to give a message to Whittlesley, requesting mortar rounds to uh, combat against a very difficult and fierce German line they were dealing with, was killed. Okay. The, the yeah, boy's that, name was George Quinn. Uh, another good movie was that 1918 that 1917. we saw. 1917. that we saw. And to be a runner, you're, you're hand delivering a message. They could, um, you know, do the marathon kind of a thing and run through the withering fire and everything is, else. Uh, to, uh, that goes back to Greek um, mythology, the right. Battle of Marathon. That also goes back to if you see the the Mel Gibson movie Gallipoli. Right, um, they were track runners in Australia. Right. They were used to. They, send we messages. didn't have you know they don't have walkie talkies. They don't have. Uh, There's a reason carrier uh, pigeons are around. Right. So <laughs> the only way that you're going to be able to communicate is to send a runner to you know run this message back to uh, headquarters that, uh, hey, we're in some deep shit here and we need reinforcements and we need ammunition, we need food because these guys started out missing breakfast to begin with. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and they've been, again, they've been fighting for, you know, a month now without really any kind of arrest. So, um, you know, they're, they're tuckered out. They're in the 15th round here. And uh, George Quinn, the uh, runner who was killed, Unable to deliver the message requesting the mortar round uh, from Whittlesley. Uh, he is killed. Uh, his body, when found, though, was surrounded by uh, four German soldiers that he had killed. Uh, during the exchange in which he killed them, they also mortally wounded him. He died unable to deliver the message. All runners, by the way, were either captured or killed as Whittlesley begins to realize that he's now in full command of a battalion that was essentially surrounded by the Germans. Their position on Hill 198 was decent but crowded. Okay, protective defensive measures, decent but crowded. The Germans could not attack them directly, but their snipers and artillery was just having a field day, picking off the huddled Americans and their makeshift defenses. Yeah, so, there was one thing that the Americans uh, did not get right is that they crowded themselves in too close and they put too many guys into the same foxhole mm -hmm. or the same. Which means one mortar round right, takes one, out 10 guys now. Yeah, uh -huh. multiple Jesus. guys rather than just onesies, twosies kind of a thing. There's a line in All Quiet on the Western Front, too, when the, the, the kid takes the shot for the first time. They're like, you have to move once you shoot. Your muzzle flash. They're all aiming at you now. Right. So um, just quiet until it's not around there. Um, the only reason the Germans don't attack and overwhelm the American position was, by the way, their belief that they were outnumbered by the Americans, which is not true. Until they figure this out. They, they think there's a superior numbered American force. Yeah, they think there's there. more Americans there than there really are. Now, aiding in this hesitation, Lawrence Patrick, mm -hmm. is uh, the German intel reports. We were talking about this. The German, the German war machine is pretty impressive when you look at it. Okay, this goes all the way back to the Germanic tribes and stuff like that. These are just people with um, a, a will and a way, if you will. Mm -hmm. have, you heard the, have you heard about <laughs> stubborn Germans, Dad? Have you heard about it? Um, but... Uh, Aiding in this hesitation is the very uh, highly touted German intel, which has deep reports on the Americans and let all the commanding officers know in these engagements, the Americans are coming. Here's what we know about them so far. The Germans uh, knew the Americans to be, quote, suicidally brave and excellent marksmen. No doubt their wild nature and survival skills coming from their time out on the American frontier, like this <laughs> Crockett and Boone fellows we keep That's hearing right. about. <laughs> Meanwhile, these are city kids, <laughs> right. many of them not even born in America. And oddly, uh, many historians will even credit the street smarts of this unit with their survival because food is scarce. Water had to be crawled towards. Kahuna, you want to drink a water while you're up here fighting on Hill 198? Yeah, I bought you a bottle of water tonight. Yeah, we, we brought We're make water. you crawl for this just to put you in the... Yeah. You would have had to get down on your hands and knees and crawl under sniper fire. 
okay, in order to get over to a, a stream where you could then kind of cup a little bit of water up to your face. That's what these boys were dealing with over here. Um, it's insanity, man. Food is scarce. Water has to be crawled towards. Uh, there's constant artillery shelling. The boys of the last battalion, uh, the lost battalion rather, were lost um, to their French and American allies. But the Germans, well, they seem to know exactly where they were. Yeah, and you know the American allies uh, and their allies, they kind of knew where they were too because, uh, well, you know, well, it was a bad news report kind of a thing that uh, gave them the moniker of the lost battalion. But we'll we'll go on with that. The German numbers now, because they do believe, keep in mind, they believe there's a superior numbered American force over here. So they have now doubled their numbers as they are able to resupply and regroup. Attacks are now going to come on all sides. An attempted assault led by Captain Holderman. Holderman, by the way, one of uh, uh, Whittlesley's uh, uh, down the chain of Subordinates. Yeah. He's going to attempt to lead an assault through the rear. So that means we're, we're trying to leave the way we came in. Huh? And it does not work. They Heavy losses. Uh, infuriates Whittlesley because we can't even get out the way we came in. This is we're. Um, I'm going to use a. I'm going to. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry to the listeners who don't like when we curse, but I'm going to use the British term for this, which is proper fucked. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you go. They were Jesus. absolutely screwed here, and they realized that heavy, heavy losses in this attempt at the assault to get out the back door, if you will. And then the guys who survived. All right, guys, that didn't work. Go back to your positions where you're dodging sniper fire and waiting for the mortar round that has your name on it. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, and by, if you need some water, crawl on your hands and knees and get some, and then and come right back over to you know deal with everything on the front lines. And again, they're 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 following orders because there is no retreat. If you retreat, any, any you are killed. Right. Any That's ground that you capture, um, you have to hold until you're. Hold at any cost. They will be hit with grenades, snipers, mortars, and more. They dealt out many, many losses, mind you, to the German forces. That's really the one thing that kept them from being overwhelmed is that the Germans were just like, we're losing a lot of guys here. Um, they were largely sitting ducks forced to return seemingly endless volleys. But uh, Woodsley is uh, determined he's going to hold his ground. His orders hadn't changed, but he wasn't sure if the Allied command knew that he and his men were surrounded and that their line would soon collapse – for sure doom, for certain doom. The best case scenario is that they all get captured. That's the best case scenario. You don't know what's going to happen. They'll probably shoot the officers upon taking them. You just don't know, okay? Um, if they don't get some form of reinforcements or uh, resupply anything, carrier pigeons are the main communication device of the time. Yeah, and in the the battalion had uh, a total of eight <clears throat> Eight carrier pigeons. So they had eight opportunities to send a message back for aid or whatever the case might Coon be. Coon is not even old enough to remember prepaid cell phone cards. <laughs> Man. It's like, oh, for Christmas, I was good this year. I got 15 minutes of talk time on a prepaid cell Mind phone. Mind your business. <laughs> now I'm realizing something. Right. I'm, I think I actually – okay. That oh, was, wow. He pulled something yeah, up here. Yeah, I – I do know about the carrier pigeons in the war, but I didn't know it was used even earlier than I initially thought. <laughs> so, okay. Well, you're going to like this one. This is the movie you're going to make one day. I have a feeling. Um, you think so? It's going to be Talking Birds in the War? I don't know about Talking Birds, but you would definitely want to tell this this particular story. Um, it's it's tragic, and then it's also a pretty good one. And in the final line of the episode, just be prepared. Kahuna's not near any windows. We have him on the first floor. He's very safe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Kahuna's mom, we're taking care of your baby boy. All right. He's okay. So, okay. That's for the last line of the show? Yes, sir. Uh, 
Oh, right. So this line is going to collapse if they don't get some sort of uh, reinforcements here. So they're going to send out carrier pigeons. Uh, understandably, the pigeons are going to have a difficult time navigating nonstop barrages of artillery and rifles. Historians now will debate this openly if Whittlesley had just given bad coordinates or if the Allied artillery was just, quote, off. But just when things can't get any worse for those lost boys in the lost battalion, friendly fire. Hey, it's the American artillery. It's coming down on us. Yeah, it's a rolling artillery barrage because it's it's it started away from them and then it's it started getting closer and closer and went and rolled right over to the guys. Top guys, of them. the other way, Ger- the Germans are there, <laughs> and they're watching it get closer and closer to them. And it starts taking out some of their own guys. This is a friendly fire incident. It's absolutely terrible here. Uh, still a point of some conjecture, too, mind you. Uh, but the friendly fire will also see Whittlesley desperately send off a final carrier pigeon. Okay, this final carrier pigeon is named the Cher Ami. Okay. Cher Ami. Yeah, well, Cher- before Cher Ami, another little thing too is that um, when they set up this um, this fortified uh, entrenchment, if you will, to try to fighting fighting off the, the Germans, in the center of it they had this big white sheet, if you will, to mark their location. So if there was any allied planes that flew overhead, they could see by the white sheet that those are our guys down there. So, and at one point while they're fighting this thing, because this is days that they've been up there. This isn't just a one day deal. This is uh, the whole overnights and and, and into the next day. eight days in total. Overnights into the next day. Um, they do see uh, an Allied plane fly overhead, and the men feel hey, terrific. They're going to they're, they're going to know where exactly where we are and everything else. And a short time later, uh, that's when this rolling barrage comes in. So was that plane just a spotter because they used aircraft as spotter aircraft so that they could call in the artillery barrage? Unfortunately, it was uh, on top of their own guys uh, mistakenly. Um, so that whole argument. There was argument also another about, incident that, um, that, and it was an incident right. too where they now tried to drop supplies, ammunition, and, and uh, first aid, you know, medical supplies to these guys. Unfortunately, they didn't quite get that right because all of the shit landed in German territory. Um, the Germans were putting out similar white spots to then trick the Allied planes into drop. So the Germans are now absolutely surrounding you. They have um, they're, they're pummeling the shit out of you with mortars. The only thing you're getting from your own side is friendly fire, and they're now sipping your hot cocoa. I'm not making that up. That's uh, the Germans are sitting there enjoying the chocolate that was being sent to encourage the boys of the Lost Battalion that things are going to be okay. Um, now the Cher Ami is going to be sent out. This is uh, the, the pigeon Cher Ami. Yeah, okay, and that's the last pigeon that they have left. All we got, All right? All our hopes and dreams pinned on this one particular pigeon. We're low on ammunition. We're low on food. You got to crawl on your belly under enemy fire to get a drink of water. Um, and uh, medical supplies. Well, now they're now taking uh, the bandages off the dead to put it onto the more recently wounded. Um, because take it off a dead body to put it on a soon to because be dead there's, body. Not, there's nothing else, Jesus, uh, nothing else to give them. Yep. So, and it's pretty, it's pretty grim. Now, the Cherami's message that it will be carrying should it get to its destination is a message that reads simply: "Our own artillery is dropping a barrage on us. For heaven's sake, stop!" Okay. Uh, as the pigeon is released to hopefully stop the madness of the friendly fire, guess what happens, Kahuna? 
It stops. The final pigeon is released as a shell explodes underneath it, killing five men and wounding the bird. Cherami, okay, this this final pigeon carrier, uh, somehow survives and delivers the message. Blinded in one eye and wounded through its breast, the hero pigeon delivers the message, helping to save the survivors of the lost battalion and will become a legend in the process. Whoa. Yeah, but it took that wounded pigeon, the Cherami, um, it took it two hours to finally get back to its, uh, you know, its uh, home loft, if you will, the pigeon loft, where it was trained to fly to. Mm-hmm. And then the telephone message finally goes to division headquarters to finally put a stop to the friendly fire artillery barrage that was wiping these guys out. Now, once the Allies stop the friendly fire, the Lost Battalion is finally able to relax. I'm sorry. No, they're not. A German attack's on the way, folks. <sighs> Which leads to, by the way, this is the most brutal attack of the entire endeavor here, too. This one leads to some of the most brutal and intense hand-to-hand fighting of the entire war. Okay. Many of the men wind up getting captured, wounded, or killed. The Americans barely keep their ground. And by surviving the latest German attack, they were faced with a very grim reality. They are cut off from supplies. They are still surrounded. Food was practically gone. Water was only accessible if you were willing to get into the line of fire. And as my father said earlier... Bandages are being taken off dead bodies to be put onto what will potentially be Beef more dead, dead bodies. Oh, yeah, next. Right. That's actually an army quote too by dead bodies attract dead bodies. So that's don't go after a downed teammate kind of a thing. Yeah, and once the once the pigeon, the Sharami, the um, the messenger pigeon gets back and the barrage, the at least the friendly fire barrage stops, um, there's a uh, a newspaper guy there at headquarters that hears of what's going on, and that's where the whole uh, there's a term lost is, battalion. There's a lost battalion that uh, well, they're not lost. They knew exactly where they were. It's just that there's nothing they could do. They tried to send in reinforcements, and the reinforcements were beaten back um, because at this point now the Germans are just sending up you know huge amounts of uh, men and materiel to uh, beat back this american onslaught mind you too just to give so this is october 5th to the 8th this is after the friendly fire incident these germans are continuing to attack the surrounded americans there are messages that are being received by Whittlesley and the lost battalion here from the germans asking the americans to please surrender one note read we can hear the suffering of your wounded we appeal to your humane sentiment to stop uh, who Whitt- said that to who? The Germans sent that to the lost battalion. Whittlesley never replied to a single German message. Yeah, there was uh, there was an Amer- a, a group of Americans that were captured in the earlier fighting. Uh, and they were interrogated, of course, on German lines. And then this one particular American was sent back into, um, what did they call it, the, uh, uh, what's the name that they the, gave? The no-go zone? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, the don't die zone. I can't remember. Um, the pocket. The pocket. There you where, go. Okay. Where, where all these Americans are now, you know, fighting for their li- very lives in this pocket. So this one captured American is given the message from the Germans to the Americans that, um, you know, please stop um, the suffering and stuff, and just just surrender for Christ's sake. And all you got to do is. To wave a white flag, and mm-hmm. we'll know that uh, you know that the uh, Germans are losing a lot a of guys fire. too here, right? Oh, absolutely, you know, it, absolutely. It's a little bit of an Alamo vibe, <clears throat> um, absolutely. Um, 
And with that, Whistley takes that white sheet that I spoke of earlier that was in the middle of the, of the, of the pocket. And he turns uh, into a ghost. He immediately um, orders to pick up that shit and, and gather that up because I don't want anybody um, mistakenly thinking that we're sending a, a, you know, a surrender signal with the, with the white sheet that's in the he middle of the He wrote it in place. all caps in his official report. No response was necessary. Oh. Yeah, he's uh, he's – Definitely dug in, and he's a he's a pissed off American. Yeah, and and that was you know following uh, night after night of uh, of just horror that um, you know in the nighttime if there was any sound or movement or a groan or a pain of a wounded man it would draw a burst of machine gun fire that the Germans would you know they would hear the the dead and the kills. dying mercy kills well mercy kills or. If you're here, if you're in a trench and it's pitch black, and you hear what you think is movement or a moan or a groan or whatever, they're just spraying that general direction with machine gun fire to uh, whether it's a mercy. You might want to call it a mercy kill. There, or, there was some of it. There was also a lot of mercy kills for friendly fire incidents during World War One as well, where it'd be a guy would be stuck out on the th- and he'd be crying out for help. Right, and they know help's not coming, so your friends because they love you will shoot you so that you die immediately and you're not out there suffering anymore. No help's coming. Efforts to reach the lost battalion were ferocious but largely futile. 700-something lives were lost in the attempts to get uh, hooked back up with the lost battalion here. Intense fighting with the German stormtroopers, folks. Stormtroopers. They're real. Okay? And by the way, they're being reinforced right now. The flamethrowers are coming in. So if you don't surrender soon with this mortar and sniper fire, the flamethrowers are coming to get you. They're just going to march up to you and spray fire on you, and you're going to die. You will burn to death in front of your friends. Whittlesley will now send a private, okay? A private by the name of Abraham Krotosinski, okay? Who had ironically fled Russia to avoid military service, (laughs) okay? He was a Polish-born, newfound American, and he's a fascinating guy too. He actually came to America. He wanted to work as a barber, and his whole thing was he goes, I hate Russia. I don't like – I don't want to be in the Russian military. I don't want to work for Russia. Russia mistreats the Jews. I believe he was a Jewish fella. Um, and, and by the way, that is, if you really want to look into that, where the what the, the later Nazi um, propaganda came from, heavily from uh, czarist Russia too. That that's a pretty damning thing. If you some of the the, the verbiage used is pulled right from uh, some of the stuff coming on in uh, czarist Russia. So uh, Whittlesley sends this private uh, Krotosinski. A Polish fella, he's going to make a daring escape. He will evade the Germans and he will make his way back to Allied forces. Krotosinski will help lead the Allies back to their lost battalion. Help had at last arrived for the lost battalion after eight days of brutal fighting, unlike anything else seen by Americans to that point in the war. Of the over 500 soldiers that entered Hill 198, only 194 made it out without injury or death. Many men were lost and considered, quote, missing in action, end quote. Used to be, um, it was always going to be like a missing in action connotation to something. But uh, missing in action or being unable to identify the remains of a soldier is going to be something that's going to come into uh, effect here. I'm about to set you up for success, Lawrence Patrick. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um Whittlesley, by the way, upon the relief of his unit, is immediately promoted to lieutenant colonel. He and three other officers were given the Medal of Honor for their actions on Hill 198 in defense of the lost battalion. 
Widdlesley will also receive a huge, huge honor coming up here in a second. And mind you, Cahoons, I know we were talking about this. Imagine this. Imagine they don't know this. Mm-hmm. They don't know this at the time. It's October 8th, right? Around this time frame. And they're about to be um, – they're finally getting relief here. They're in the worst fighting of their life. This war has less than less than five weeks left in it. It's about to end in five weeks. And there's really no new territory they're going to gain. It's an armistice. World War I never – it, it ended. There was not – it was kind it was of a just draw. a ceasefire. It was just like, all right, let's stop the meat grinder. Right. People are complaining about the burgers. We have no – yeah, <laughs> we have nobody left. We have no generations left to send to waste on this war. That's really what it was. That is horrible. And that's why you see sometimes uh, World War One and World War Two had some people that served in both because they were so young upon the service in the Great War that they were still of military age in the you know World War Two, which is insanity. Um, that being said, Dad, there's a huge, huge honor that uh, uh, Woodsley is going to have uh, bestowed upon him. Uh, he's actually going to be a pallbearer for a very particular um, interment ceremony. And I want to set you up for success here. This kind of goes into what you were talking about, uh, Kahuna, earlier. So I'm going to let you do that. Um, then at the very end, I'm going to go through a couple of the famous names of people that were in the Lost Battalion and what, what they went on to do. And then we'll have that one last line that's going to make him lose his goddamn mind. Okay. So without um, further ado. Well, Widdlesley is a- awarded the um, um, Medal of Honor along with his second in command, George G. McMurty, Murtry. Uh, I think there was three different guys that received the Medal of Honor um, from their service from uh, the engagement with the Lost yes, Battalion. Sir, four of them. Um, a couple distinguished service crosses. As you said, uh, you know, this was in, in October, the first part of October, and by November the 11th, um, there's an armistice declared, uh, and the fighting stops. War's not over. It wasn't officially uh, a surrender, or it was really just an armistice. Is an armistice. It means it's a, there was a ceasefire. But anyhow, the uh, the meat grinder um, ends, and a lot of these guys come home. Uh, and it's now like nineteen, I believe it was in nineteen twenty one, where Congress decides that there's a lot of Americans that are buried over in Europe. Um, if you were killed. Um, in service, your family had the opportunity to have the body sent home to anywhere in the United States, um, or you could have uh, the remains um, buried or interned in uh, in fr- in uh, in Europe. Correct. Um, but this was such a horrific uh, war. I mean, guys are just getting blown to bits that there there are no remains or identifiable remains uh by the by the first world war we now have what was the the precursor to a dog tag they had a right uh, like an aluminum disc that they would wear around their neck that would identify who you were if that disc could be found or if that was remained but there was a a large large numbers of um unknowns I mean, who is this? It's a, it's some kind of a human remains, but we have no idea who it might be. So there was a large uh, numbers of unknown soldiers that uh, paid the supreme sacrifice, and Congress finally decides that we're going to do something in Arlington National Cemetery, um, which later became known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Heavy duty. Um, they thought that um, 
you know, there were unknowns from previous wars, but um, this was such a horrific uh, situation with the First World War. It was so supposed to be the war that ended all wars. ended all wars that we couldn't possibly ever think about having a war again after after going through the Great War. Um, unfortunately, that artist. wasn't happening. Um, there's a number of, I mean, a vast number of unknown soldiers that are in in Europe uh, in American cemeteries in Europe, um, there is some type of a system is put together that they identify four, they didn't identify, but they gather up four different kind of, it was almost like a lottery kind of a thing that the army and in their infinite wisdom um, selects four to represent all of these unknowns. And then through a mix and match, you know, shuffle the cards kind of a thing, one of them is selected to be brought back and to represent all of the unknowns from the Great War to be uh, entombed at, at uh, Arlington National Cemetery just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, there's a number of different Medal of Honor winners, uh, recipients that act as uh, pallbearers for that. And Whittlesley is, is one of those mm -hmm. that now um, acts as a pallbearer to the Tomb of the Unknown. Now, we're, we're up to, I believe, 1921, I believe. Um, when the ceremony took place. When, the, when right. the ceremony took place. And it was a huge, it was a huge ceremony. Um, There's also a uh, World War I um, Veterans Memorial outside of Atlantic City. That is actually featured in Boardwalk Empire. More on that in a second. That is still standing. You can visit that. It's near Lucy the Elephant, oddly enough, Kona. Yeah, no way. Yes, sir. It's right down there. That's cool. Yeah, no, it was November of 21. So it was the Armistice, uh, Armistice Day, or what we now know as Veterans Day, that uh, Woodlessly acted as the pallbearer at the burial of the unknown soldier at Arlington, um, along with fellow uh, Medal of Honor recipients. Um, Alvin York was one of them for those of us who, uh, uh, Sergeant York, who, yeah, Sergeant York, who liked to watch uh, those type of things. Um, shortly after that, uh, he booked passage, uh, from New York to Havana. I don't know what the uh, jaw drop moment you wanted to spring on the kahuna. But, oh, I got a couple. Oh, you do? All right. So I, I, do. I can, You're I can take this up to, uh, Whittlesley's, uh, Whittlesley's passing, okay. please, sir. Um, Woodlesley never got over, um, you know, this lost battalion uh, situation. How he, could, was placed, he was he – literally, he didn't know – he was not the commanding officer, mind you, by the way. He was the senior ranking officer when they realized, oh, fuck, nobody's around. Right. Sorry for cursing again. It is what it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, he was just following orders. But um, uh, he really never got over the that whole trauma. I mean, you talk about um, – Post-traumatic stress disorder. This is disorder. when we learned what shell shocked. Meant. Right. That's a that's a term that came uh, into being during the First World War. That you know, shell shocked from the constant barrages mm -hmm. of the being in the trenches, and there's nothing you could do. I mean, guys were just losing it. And from shell shocked, we went to uh, um, battle fatigue, and from battle fatigue, we went to post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, George Carlin had a great bit on uh, how as the Wars kept on uh, going through their generations. The the terminology just got 
more and more uh, involved. But anyhow, um, shortly after this whole big ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in, in Arlington that Woodlesley was uh, part of, um, he books uh, passage uh, from New York to Havana um, uh, aboard the SS Tolia, uh, a United Fruit Company ship. <laughs> um, that was a little loose reception there too. Smedley? For the, yeah. No way. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, um, he books this uh, um, I'm not passage. jumping out of a window yet, but that's pretty close. Mine will. <laughs> um, he, he books passage to Havana. Uh, and again, this is now 1921. So what, are, what is the United States going through? Prohibition. But as soon as he gets three miles out, uh, you're, he starts drinking pretty heavily uh, at the at the uh, captain's table. And uh, uh, about 11.15 at night, uh, he says he's retiring from the evening. And he was certainly in good spirits at that point because he was – he was, um, you know, drinking pretty heavily, but uh, Widowsley jumps overboard and commits suicide. He he jumps off the ship, and uh, it wasn't like he slipped or fell or anything out because um, um, his body was never recovered. But uh, before leaving New York, he prepared a will leaving uh, his property to his mother, uh, a series of letters in the cabin addressed to relatives and friends, the letters were addressed to his brothers and that type of a thing. And, um, you know, he just, uh, he couldn't take it anymore. Um, and for years after the, the First World War, any time he would have correspondence or contact with some of the guys that were survivors, uh, it was usually a, a hard time that uh, – that they were going through as well. That uh, it makes you how think could about you not, it. you know, yeah. how could you survive that and not ask yourself, how come I, I was able to walk out and all those other guys were were left there? Um, USS Indianapolis comes to mind as yeah, well. That their, exactly. uh, their captain exactly. committed suicide years later with his uh, service pistol. Um, his second in command at uh, you know at the uh, at the Lost Battalion uh, escapade, this George McMurdy, he he did quite well for himself. He was an interesting character as well, though, because uh, another Teddy Roosevelt tie-in, McMurdy. McMurdy, McMurtry, before um, the First World War, he fought with uh, <laughs> Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War in Cuba. So, I mean, he was uh, – but he was also a, a lawyer, a very rich lawyer. He went on to become very, very wealthy uh, post uh, post First World War. But uh, and another uh, Medal of Honor winner, um, Harvard educated uh, Wall Street lawyer. But uh, um, just shows you the the makeup of the American forces that it wasn't just all cowboys and Indians. That uh, there was some true American heroes. And you know how do you how do you paint any of these guys as as losers other than they were the situation. Loserdom was thrust upon them. <laughs> well, uh, there's also a couple other interesting members as we're wrapping up over here. Uh, and again, if you guys want to continue to support the show for as little as three dollars a month, you can help me do that. I have to be able to keep the lights on over here. I got to be able to pay Ming Chen, and I have to be able to pay the Kahuna. Okay, so for as little as three dollars a month, you can keep these episodes going. When the money goes away, the show goes away. I can't afford to bleed this much. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I bleed enough as it is. Uh, come see me live whenever you can. Check us out. Uh, it's at KP Burke Sucks over on Instagram, KP Burke over on Facebook. There is an American Loser page on Facebook still. That's the one we're going to try to uh, post a little bit more from moving forward. Um, 
Also, do me a favor, check out In the Key of Christmas by one Christian Cordes, whoever the hell that is. It's available on YouTube, I believe. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where this find, album is. Find out who he is and we'll get to him. Uh, and then also keep uh, pay attention to what's going on over at the uh, new Smodcastle, Kevin Smith's new joint over here in Atlantic Highlands. A lot of cool stuff's happening over there. Lots of cool stuff is happening over there. Maybe someday, Kahuna, you'll introduce me to your friend. Shut um, up. <laughs> uh, now, Dad, this Lost Battalion, though, you mentioned a couple of the officers that were big names. Obviously, Whittlesley is going to be a Medal of Honor recipient and a Paul Bear, a huge honor for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which if you haven't seen it, you have to go see it. It's incredible. It, uh, it's jarring to see it. Uh, and it uh, also, please check out uh, All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix as soon as you can. Watch it. It was uh, – it was quite the watch, man. It's uh, it's got. It reminded me of watching the Deer Hunter, where you watch at the end of it, the credits roll, and you're like, everybody's just quiet in the room for a couple minutes. Uh, very, very much worth watching. So, of this last uh, lost battalion here, there's also a guy by the name of uh, Eddie Grant. Why is Eddie Grant uh, worth mentioning here? He was killed during the engagement the lost battalion was involved with, and uh, he had actually left playing uh, baseball for the New York Giants, the now San Francisco Giants. He left a uh, career of playing in baseball to go serve in the war as an officer. Uh, he was a star player. He was killed in the battle, and he is honored with a plaque that was uh, placed over at the world-famous polo grounds where the Giants used to play. Okay, uh, Another guy that we mentioned earlier, the gentleman who uh, made the run, I believe a uh, Polish-Jewish fellow by the name of Abraham Krotoszynski. Mm -hmm. He will go on to play himself in a movie version of The Lost Battalion. So he plays himself in the movie. He then, I think, tries to move to Palestine, which is interesting. I want his agent. Then, <laughs> then he is given a job in the post office working for the Federal Postal Service by President Calvin Coolidge. Are you kidding me? Abraham Crozier, the hero of the lost – the man who helped rescue the lost – of course, any job you want. Is yours. Yes. So here's your mail route. Um, <laughs> what? That's right. So now one very famous member of the Lost Battalion is – get this one, Goody. You're not ready for this. We said it already. These are tough street kids, mostly from New York City. Your prohibition hasn't really happened just yet. You're, Don't you know, tell me. Robert De Niro. Very close. <laughs> very close. Actually, uh, Robert De Niro played him in what? The Untouchables. Wait a minute. Say for it. years, for years, this gentleman would tell people, as they referred to him as Scarface, he would tell people the scars he received on his left side of his face were from his time spent with the Lost Battalion fighting in World War One. <laughs> He's gone, folks. He's gone. Get him back. That's not even the one. That wasn't even the one. Wake him up. <laughs> Al Capone, a native of New York claimed to have received the scars on his face from seeing action while fighting with the Lost Battalion in the Argonne Forest. What? Interestingly enough, the <laughs> scars were actually from a knife attack after he insulted a woman. Al Capone never spent a single moment of his life in the army. His lies were obvious amongst his friends. You made me jump out of a window for that? He lied. About yeah. Wow! It. And by the way, he goes, oh, I was with the Lost Battalion. Dickhead. Oh, yeah, that's that's that was the one, Kahuna, not the racketeering in the, the criminal empire? I thought you were cool this whole time. I mean, <laughs> do you know the story of what he did to, to Fats Geronimo? No. Oh, my God. I got a story for you after this ends. Interesting. This is wild. Well, here's the final note of the episode here, Kahuna. And uh, <sighs> like we said, folks, 
Uh, thank you so much for joining us again on American Lizard. We'll be back. Uh, we have a Patreon exclusive for the end of the month coming up here to uh, end the new year on a high note. If you've been with us since the beginning, we're so happy to have you. If you're brand new, welcome to the party, pal. And if you're on your way out, I'm sorry we cursed so much, okay? Cher Ami, the pigeon hero that saved the lost battalion from friendly fire, was decorated as a war hero and became an international sensation. The name Cher Ami became well-known. And in fact, the Lost Battalion's monument has Cher Ami as part of uh, its monument, okay? Uh, unfortunately, uh, because the, the, the pigeon does become famous all throughout Europe and America, the famed pigeon does sadly die from the wounds, uh, treated and with the utmost care and respect and uh, courtesy. Stuffed and sat next to Balto. <laughs> Close. Um, no, uh, it really was – the, the famed pigeon does die from its wounds uh, eventually, but it was given a very comfortable life. It was never sent back out. It, I believe uh, – I think it actually had a couple missions uh, uh, involving the Battle of Verdun. But uh, anyway, uh, on June 13th, 1919, um, Cher Ami will uh, sadly pass away, this hero pigeon that helped save 194 men's lives. Jeremy died in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Was there like a retirement home for for warbirds? And well, it's an army installation. It was probably right next to where the Rosenbergs were about to start sealing secrets oh about the Manhattan God. Project, Kahuna. So you mean to tell? Um, I mean the old studio in Eatontown, where we used to be able to open up a window and throw a rock to hit Fort Monmouth. Is not only where the Rosenbergs with were the stealing Westinghouse plants, elevator. with the Westinghouse elevator inside of it. <laughs> yeah. New Jersey is still the center of the universe, folks. We don't like it either. We're just telling it like it is. Anything you want to say on the way out, Coons? I love history. <laughs> I we, do love We it. love you, pal. Um, and please check out uh, the In the Key of Christmas by Christian Cordes, whoever the hell that is. Whoever the LP, hell LP, anything is. you want to say on the way nah, out? We're good. We're good. This is a damn good one. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, please check out and support those projects we talked to you guys about and uh, keep following the show. My name is KP Burke, and that was The Lost Battalion, American Losers. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. <laughs> <laughs>